0: never know what events are going to get you home. For the Christian, trials, especially persecution, force people to do one of two things. To either run to God, to their true home, or uh, call it quits, can their faith. A British report that, uh, a British paper reported that Christians around the globe, Christians, constitute 80% of all religious persecution in the world. Myanmar, formerly Burma, Christians are routinely subjected to imprisonment, torture, labor camps, murder. Persecution is increasing in China, North Korea, a quarter of the country's Christians live in forced labor camps. Somalia, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen are regularly in the 10 worst places to be Christian today. That's difficult for us, isn't it, to contextualize what this actually means because we don't face that kind of persecution here. However, Christians in the first century faced similar persecutions. It's what I've just talked about. And facing those hardships can cause our mind to do tricky things in terms of our faith. Again, do we run home to the fellowship that God provides, or do we cut and run? I would suggest that all trials are a way for us to get a read on those things that count the most, those things that last. And I ask you, now you're talking to a man who loves baseball, and baseball just settled their collective bargaining agreement, and the Broncos got Russell Wilson. I was excited about both of those things, being a Broncos fan, okay? Okay. But compared to fellowship with God, that doesn't even make the radar screen. Right? I mean, you're, you're talking apples and oranges there and talking fellowship with others. These are things that, that weigh heavily. That, and I think when we talk about home, it encapsulates those, those things. Let's take a look at our passage And then we're going to dig into it. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's stand as we take a look at it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the sake of context, I'll read on. As we open up your word, it's not our desire that we just gain knowledge. It's not our desire that we learn to do better on a Bible quiz. It's our desire that you take your word and mold us make us further into the image of Christ, that we mature in our faith, that we put it into practice. And Father, for all the children that are here today and our next generation Sunday, I pray that even though they might hear concepts that would be new to them, that they would be able to pick out portions that would be meaningful and that your Holy Spirit would operate in their hearts as well as in all of ours, that we would be receptive to your word and allow your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives. May we leave here with our faith strengthened. May we leave here being matured We ask this in the name of Jesus because we believe these things are consistent with his character and are what he would want. Amen. You may be seated. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse 3 lets us know who we are coming to and that is a good God. A good God. Peter is making plain that all Christians can draw near to a good God. A concept that many major religions do not accept. There's God that is separate from human beings. They have to attain somehow getting to heaven by their good works. This is what most other religions would teach. So you cannot approach God like a friend, like with communication, intimate communication, but this is what the Bible says God is offering to us, an intimate association of communion and fellowship between believers and their Lord. And this privileged position is due because of our union with Christ. Christ is the living stone, it says here. Now, stones were the material of the temple where God's presence resided in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. But here, Peter is shifting and saying that There is no one closer to God, no one personifying the presence of God more than his exact representation in Jesus Christ. He's not just a stone. He is a living stone. The metaphor implies that we can have a personal, vital relationship with God because Christ is alive. Think of it, kids. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you can communicate with God. You can talk to God, and he hears you, and he wants to respond to you. That's a wonderful thing. The metaphor is playing again on the meaning of the Old Testament temple compared to Christ in the presence of God. But as a living stone, he is superior to the dead stones of the temple it says in hebrews but as it is christ has obtained a ministry that is is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second he's called a living god in acts 14:15 to demonstrate his superiority to dead idols. He's living bread in John 6.51 to talk about his perpetual sustenance. He's also called the living water in John 7.38 to speak of his continual refreshment because of his grace and forgiveness that are ours to abide in. But this living stone, understand, was rejected by the religious elite. By rejecting him, they did not value him, and ultimately, they had him crucified. However, I want you to understand, this does not change the actual value of Christ. The value of Christ is not determined by what others think of him. I have talked to spouses who've been abused, and some of these spouses feel like an ant in terms of importance. But we know objectively that they're made in the image of God, they're valuable to God, important to God, but yet they don't feel that way. You have the objective reality here, and then you have how they feel here. It's the same with Christ. Many reject him, but that does not change who he is. He is the living stone, a rejected stone, but he is Chosen and precious. The objective value of Jesus is that he is chosen by God to accomplish the redemptive plan, and he is precious to God. Hebrews also says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Peter is applying some reasoning in this passage that there are great benefits that the believer possesses. Why? Because they are in Christ and Christ is in us. Verse five says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a living stone and we are in Christ. So what's that make us? Living stones. Now we are not a literal building. We are not brick and mortar, but we are being built up into a fellowship of living saints, a spiritual house enjoyed together who participate in giving daily sacrifices of obedience and worship to God. We do this because we are in Christ. Notice one thing that was not repeated in this verse that was repeated in the previous one, and that was rejected of men. Peter didn't need to remind his recipients that they were being rejected of men. It's why he wrote the letter. They lived with it daily. What they needed was to be reminded that they were precious. Because when we go through things in our life, maybe you've had a marriage that's gone south, you've had other issues, and you're thinking, God doesn't give a wit about me. John the Baptist wondered himself and doubted in prison, the one who was the forerunner of Jesus. And he asked the disciples, is Jesus really the one? I mean, I'm here in prison. Is Jesus really the Messiah? It's what persecution trials can do to us, as Peter said uses the metaphor of stones in a house, it invokes this temple idea of the Old Testament where God's presence dwelled. But let's talk about this living stones for a second. The idea is that where God's people are, that's where God is. We are members of a house or household. Each time a person places their faith in Christ, a new stone is added to the fellowship of the church. Christ was the cornerstone. We are stones or building blocks of this house of fellowship with God. Jesus Christ is called the foundation in 1 Corinthians 3.10. Hebrews 3 lets us know Christ is also the builder of this house, greater than the one under Moses. And listen to how these concepts are brought together by the apostle Paul. Think of all these things that apply to us. We're no longer strangers and aliens, fellow citizens with the saints. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are not an alien. We have a special place in the household of faith. You might say it this way. Because we're enjoying God's presence, we are in the holy of holies of the temple because of what Christ has done for us. Think of that. This is the place that in the Old Testament, the high priest would have a rope attached around his waist so that if he made a mistake doing the sacrifices in the temple, he would die. He would be struck dead. He would have to be pulled out of the temple because no one else could go in, except for the high priest. And now we are allowed to come with confidence in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God. Do you have any idea of the magnitude of this? It's amazing. We can approach him with confidence because we approach him in Christ. Listen, it's not because you go to church. It's not because you grew up A.G. or Baptist or Presbyterian. It's not any of that. not because you're Reformed or whatever. It's not any of that. It's because of Christ. This is why we can enter into the Holy of Holies in joyous presence. For it was indeed fitting that we should have I just think we fail to appreciate this truth. I know I do, and it's meaning into my life. And I'm sure if I did, if I was truly aware of this, you know what would fly out the window is discontent. How could I be discontent understanding this, right? That I'm in the presence of God. How could I have image issues? I mean... Our world today is fascinated with thinking they are defining their own image now. But we are valuable not because of something we do or don't do to our bodies, but because of what God has stamped upon us as being made in the image of God. Remember, Peter is writing to a persecuted group whose struggles are loss of homes, loss of loved ones, and they themselves are facing death. And these truths are to undergird them and remind them that their possessions in Christ far exceed anything that they could lose. You know, we can quit trying to manufacture God's presence because he's already with us. Realize that? We We are to enjoy what we have and not point fingers as if other believers don't have it. Now, we can ignore his presence, we can take it for granted, but God has provided worship as a beautiful way to appreciate and value his presence. The glory of God, the visible evidence of his presence, led the people out of Egypt during the day in a pillar of cloud, and at night with a pillar of fire. God's glory had filled the temple, the tabernacle, under Moses and later Solomon's temple. Remember, the tabernacle was the movable structure of God's people and the temple, the fixed one. The sins of the people, however, in Ezekiel's day caused God to lift his presence from the temple. And later, a promise was made in Haggai that said this, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in Malachi, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The presence of God is not there, but I'm going to bring it. And what happened? Israel had to wait 400 more years until Mary and Joseph came and then delivered a baby. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus referred to his own body as the temple, making it greater than the perfect one from the Old Testament structure, Paul would write, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Colossians. And as if riding some kind of operatic crescendo, the disciple who was closer to Jesus than anyone else said this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is the human personification of the very presence of God, for he is God. So the dwelling place of God is no longer a building. Right? I remember when Janet and I first got married, we lived in a flat right across the street from Tower Grove Park in St. Louis. And there was this brick church that had on top of the front door the dwelling place of God. I thought, wow, well, there he is. <laughs> but it's simply not true. The dwelling place of God is no longer a building. And listen, it's no longer just in the physical presence of Christ. But after Pentecost, it is his people. Christ's followers are told in John fourteen seventeen, he dwells with you and will be in you. Later, we're told followers of Christ will have God be at home with them in John 14, 23. So the people of God are the true temple of God, the place where God dwells. This is an objective fact with or without a church building, with or without certain programs, with or without certain music. We can enjoy these things when we recognize the objective reality of Christ's presence in every believer. We're not to compete for it with other churches. This new house is his people. It's a place where God dwells on earth. Paul wrote, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We need to think of the ramifications of the physical reality of Christ in a body, God in a body, and now the church in a body, and God choosing to express himself this way. Now, the body's not to be worshipped, but there is a recognition of the embodiment of God's presence, and I think a respect for it is needed As we come together physically, also as a church, there is something special about our fellowship and relationships. Sorry to disappoint you, but they cannot be replicated on a computer screen, no matter how virtual it appears. The communication is dumbed down. You ever had to try, ever try to have an argument over an email? Bad thing to do. When email first came out, I can remember having these long discussions on email, and you couldn't get anywhere. I quit doing it. You miss the face-to-face contact. You miss the embodiment of, of fellowship. You know, the past couple years, we've turned to video at home for church. Now, some have had to do this. That I understand but others also now accept it as a representation of the church, But that's church. I don't think it's the real thing. It's not embodied fellowship of the church. I think there's a reason why we take communion, a physical substance of communion, as a recognition of the embodiment of God in Christ. And the church is that physical representation so instead of seeing how far we can get from that and how many layers we can install, I think we should better embrace what God has provided for us to enjoy his presence with him and with one another. Doesn't make it evil or bad. I'm just saying it's not the real thing. Priests represented the people of Israel, to God. They brought offerings to God for the people. They communicated to God for the people. And at appointed times, they would go into the Holy of Holies. It was a privileged position under the Mosaic Covenant. And now Peter calls people what? A holy priesthood you are holy, turn to the person next to you, you are a holy priest. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a holy priest. I bet you did not tell your spouse that this morning. Oh, I love you, you holy priest. But it's true, is it not? Every Christian can now with confidence draw near to the throne of of grace. And corporate worship of Christians can be enjoyed not to enter into the presence of God, you know, because we're in a church building, but to enjoy the presence of God as an enduring reality. We function as active priests welcoming the presence of God. John calls us a kingdom of priests in Revelation 1. Martin Luther said, not only are we the freest of kings, we are also priests forever, which is far more excellent than being kings. For as priests, we are worthy to appear before God to pray for others and to teach one another divine things. Verse 5 of our passage says, as priests, we offer our own type of sacrifices. The success or efficacy of these sacrifices is not determined by how much money we spend or how big the church program is that we're involved in, but whether they are offered through Jesus Christ. Take a note of this. We can identify what some of these sacrifices are. We'll talk about this here in a minute. But their primary feature is a Christ quality. He is pleased with the spiritual sacrifices of the believer because he sees in them a motivation of seeing Christ for who he is, a representation of his ways. He talked previously about Christ being the foundation of our works. And when he's not, Paul talks about these works being burnt up like wood, hay, and stubble or or garbage. You know, I've been a pastor for over 30 years, and it's hard for me to think that maybe some of the things I've done as a pastor will be burned up, but it will happen because I know myself, I know my flesh, I know my ego, or at least I'm aware of it most of the time. But the truth is, is that many things that we do that are religious, even for God, are done in the flesh. For ego, for recognition, for esteem, for power, a whole host of reasons. It's a sobering thought. And so there's this minute-by-minute dependence I'm to have upon Christ. Apostle Paul said it this way, but I'm afraid that as the serpent Deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, is it possible that some of our ministry runs right past Christ? Because it's a man made endeavor? Purely? Holy? W H O L O I. Christ is to be our fuel in moment-by-moment dependence and is to be our goal for him to receive glory. When the church is about us, let me tell you what's going to (laughs) happen. And we see this all around evangelicalism, including ourselves. So let's not fancy ourselves that we got it all down, those other churches don't. I'm talking about us, all of us. When the church is about us, you know what we prioritize? Comfort. And what's going to happen then when that happens, we're going to run from conflicts and irritations, you know, when it doesn't match up to our piccadillies. Write that down, kids. Piccadillies, okay? Here's what the Christian who is maturing will say. Discomfort, conflict, and irritations can be great teachers. And primarily, they teach me, priority, and greatness of Christ. Because we're always going to be irritated about stuff that we see. Now there are some things that may rise to a level of importance where you simply cannot be a part. I get that. That's such, such a, a doctrinal difference, for instance. But that's not what I'm talking about here. Discomfort, conflict, and irritation can often be great teachers for us. But we have learned, because of our fleshly nature, to fashion around us people who agree with us about all the secondary issues, and that makes us comfortable. I think there is something that is beautiful about diversity and unity. We're not interested in uniformity, but true unity with the diversity. Spiritual sacrifices today are not literal animals offered within a physical temple, at a physical altar. They are acts of obedience offered up to Christ for his glory, to use for his means. In fact, Romans 12.1 speaks of spiritual sacrifices being offered to God in the form of our whole body. It implies that everything our body does is to be involved in ourselves in stewardship to God with every activity. Our physical bodies, by the way, are not our own. But instruments that every portion be offered to God for his use and service and honor. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your spiritual service. Other items mentioned in Scripture as sacrifices are the praise of our lips in Hebrews 13.25, good works in Hebrews 13.26, money or material possessions in Philippians 4. Anything we do in service to God that honors Christ can be thought of as a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God, a continual sweet aroma ascends to his throne then and brings him delight. light. Meghalaya in northwest India is arguably the wettest place on earth. The mile-high mountain range there once boasted an annual accumulation of 82 feet. Most of the rain falls during the summer monsoons and in this season, gentle creeks become raging rivers and passable on foot. An extravagant commuter bridge system is needed to keep villages connected to one another. Normal bridges are not an option. Because of rainfall, wooden bridges would quickly collapse to erosion. Concrete and steel are not available in this remote region. So members of the Casas tribe have crafted an ingenious solution. On the riverbank, a small strangler tree is planted. Once the tree is large enough, roots are extracted from the ground. And these roots are meticulously cultivated to grow to a sufficient length and coaxed across the gorge. Once on the other side, the roots are sown into the opposing riverbank, take a hold, and they grow thick. Roots from other strangler trees are enticed across the gorge, interwoven into a walkway enough to support pedestrian traffic. They become living bridges, some of which, get this, have lasted for centuries. The largest, the Umshang Double-Decker Root Bridge, is reported to be more than a mile long and stands at a height of 2,400 feet. As you might imagine, the growth of hundreds of roots across wide spans is a very slow process. It's so slow that a bridge cannot be completed within a single lifetime. The work of the project must be passed from one generation to To the next, children are taught from a very young age how to care for the strangler tree and direct its growth. I'd like to think that sacrifices to God are like living bridges. They take root, even span generations to entwine us where once... Differences were embanked. Living sacrifices bridge the gospel where once unheard. Living sacrifices reconcile where sin made valleys. And each act is a valuable, lasting contribution, especially when tested by storm. Blood and hardship. So, what are we to do? Keep planting. Why? Because you're holy priests. Let's pray.